The most memorable travel experiences are people-to-people -people connections, contacts that bridge the differences between cultures and worldviews. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we have a special guest who embodies the East meets West metaphor, and not without a price. Sir Salman Rushdie writes some of the most significant literature of our age. He joins us in a moment to explain the inspiration for his latest novel, The Enchantress of Florence, in which a scoundrel from Italy challenges the world of a powerful mogul in 16th century India. Since we now live in this age when there is such a complicated engagement between East and West, I thought it would be very interesting to go look at the beginning of it. Sometimes you look at the beginning of something, it gives you some clues for why the future turned out as it did. And later in the hour, we'll get inspired to sail the eastern Mediterranean. Anthony Sandberg has logged countless nautical miles there, and he recommends how we can rediscover the ancient roots of the Mediterranean from a sailor's perspective. Welcome aboard for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. It's not often you find an extensive bibliography in a work of fiction. Author Salman Rushdie spent seven years researching to create the characters and situation in his novel, The Enchantress of Florence. He's joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves to share with us his latest work featuring the exhilarating collision between history and cultures, real and imagined. And later in the hour, we'll get inspired to go sailing in the waters of the eastern Mediterranean. Thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're joined by Salman Rushdie, who's got a new book, The Enchantress of Florence. Mr. Rushdie is an Indian-born Englishman. He's a historian. He's written nine or ten award-winning novels. His new novel, some say his best yet, is a historic fantasy of a woman trying to take control of her destiny in a male-dominated world. It's set in the 16th century in both Renaissance Florence and in Mughal India. Mr. Rushdie is most famous for his satanic verses, which earned him a fatwa, or death sentence, from the Ayatollah, which caused him to live in hiding for a decade. Today, Salman Rushdie is out and about, and really out, with a brand new novel. Mr. Rushdie, thanks for joining us. Hello there. Nice to talk to you. Enchantress of Florence. Now, this book brings together the Mughal capital, and that's Muslim India in its zenith, and Renaissance Florence at its peak. We, mm -hmm. know, we know about Renaissance Florence, most Americans, but... Mughal India is kind of a mystery. How, how would you give us a, a picture of what Mughal India was like when we know Michelangelo and Botticelli were doing their thing in Florence? Well, what's interesting is that this was also a kind of golden age across the world in India. It was also a time of artistic renaissance. In fact, much of what one now thinks of as the greatest Indian painting uh, of the classical period was being done during the reign of the Emperor Akbar, who's a major character in the novel. It was also a time of great philosophical inquiry, just as it was in Renaissance Florence, and, and a time in which the emperor himself was prompting and, and demanding a whole new evaluation of religion and of culture and of society. And, and so in, in very interesting ways, the two worlds mirror each other. They were both uh, pinnacles, if you like, of, of the history on the one hand of Europe and on the other hand of India. So they knew that they were having their renaissances or that they, they were flourishing. Yes, that's right, although they didn't know each other. I mean, that's the thing. Huh. We're talking about a period in which there was almost no contact between the East and the West. It was just beginning to happen. Now, that's quite a stretch, then, to weave a story that ties them together quite intimately. Yeah, but that's the kind of the novelistic fun, isn't it, to try yeah. and find a way of making the thing happen that never happened. Uh, I mean, if you go 100 years later, there's lots of contact, but at this moment, I thought what I was looking at, really, if you like, was the beginning, the very beginning of the cultural engagement between the East and the West, which now, of course, is a big subject. It's very timely now. Yeah, sometimes you look at the beginning, you begin to see how things worked out later on, you know? Initially, was it a, a trade relationship that sparked this, or, or was it a It was trade and war. Trade, trade and war. Trade and war. Trade, war, exploration, all those things. Similar themes. Yeah. Anything in this book that's going to get people mad at you? <laughs> <laughs> no, not unless they don't like this kind of thing. <laughs> that's good. You know? I mean, I find when people write about my work that I don't get an awful lot of so-so reviews. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, I, if I'm getting marks out of 10, I either get kind of 11 out of 10 or I get <laughs> minus 1 out of 10. Well, I, I tell you, I got, I got into the book and on page 3, your, your description of the caravanserai just got me hooked. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, this, this sort of fantasy world, 
it's not that big of a stretch. I mean, it's it's easy to believe that it really was that way. If you can paint us a picture of a, of a caravanserai back in the 16th century. Well, a, a caravanserai is basically the place where journeys began and ended. So it was, I guess, like, you know, the place where if, if you were a traveler, if you were a merchant, you'd go there to equip your beasts of burden, you know, your camels and your elephants. You'd get everything they needed in the way of victuals, but also in terms of, you know, saddles and baggage and so there were chandleries, and, and also there were places to stay. If you came back, if you arrived at the capital city of Sikri, where the book, a lot of the book is set, if you arrived there at the end of a long journey, then all around this great square of the caravanserai, there were cheap hostelries where you could get a yeah. cheap bed on the roof. You know, a lot of people in India, because it's hot, sleep out of doors. So these were positioned a day's camel hike apart from India all the way to Europe or something. Is that right? That's right. Well, they, exactly. They were they were like uh, staging posts, staging posts on long journeys. Yeah. And, and people going on these long journeys, I mean, for example, down the Silk Route, these would be the invaluable places where you could refresh yourself and rest and get your animals to be rested and taken care of and, and buy and sell the things that you needed. Plus functioning as the blogosphere or the internet of the age, I suppose. Absolute, no question. It was the place where information was exchanged. And that's where history became mystical and woven together, I would imagine. Well, it's all, it's all story, isn't it? The interesting yeah. thing is you're living in a period in which it was very hard to have any kind of independently verified information. You know, if a man comes to town and says, this is who I am, and this is my family background, and this is what I do, you kind of have to decide if you believe him or not, because there's no way of verifying it. You know, you can be whoever you say you are, if you can make it stick. So your writing has often been called magical realism. I would imagine that's the kind of history that was being woven in those caravanserais. Well, I think it's very interesting. The world of the 16th century, again, both in Europe and in India, and everywhere in between, was a world that deeply believed in magic. You know, they believed in the existence of magic, the reality of magic, and the and the use of magic in absolutely in their everyday lives. You know, so, you know, if you fell in love with a girl and you wanted her to fall in love with you, the, you would obviously go and get a love potion. Um, <laughs> if you had a business rival whose projects you wished to fail, you'd try and go get a hex put on him. Wow. You know, and and, and people used witchcraft in the way that maybe we use medicine, you know, but the fact is that it was, a, it was a time in which, if you like, the magical and the realistic were not considered to be separate entities. They were all part of the same continuum and the same world. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Salman Rushdie about his new novel, The Enchantress of Florence. Um, Mr. Rushdie, I've read that you think that um, reading the Kama Sutra is good foreplay for your new book. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, well, no, it's just, you know, when you're studying the past, it's relatively easy to study the political history. It's relatively easy to find out what happened and who the king was and where the battles were and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't take that long right. to get that stuff up. The thing that's harder and actually more necessary for a novel is to find out how people thought and to find out the details of everyday life that would bring the past to life. And of course, one of the things that you find in India in, in this period um, are these compendiums of sexual delight, you know, which, which uh, there's not just the Kama Sutra. The Kama Sutra is only one of at least three major compendiums that were written uh, during this period, which were all about, um, you know, how to have fun. Was that unique to India? Was, was Europe kind of uh, lagging behind in that regard? I, I've not come across similar compendiums in Europe. Because you had those medieval love uh, Ovid kind of things, you know. But yes, was... but, they were, but they weren't explicit. They no. weren't explicit. You know, right. The Kama Sutra is nothing if not explicit. <laughs> so is risque, <laughs> is the concept of risque in a man's mind or a woman's mind essentially mm. the same today as it was in the 16th century? Yes, I think it was. I think, you know, we get up to the same stuff. How do you know? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. That's a long question. That's uh, the beauty of being a novelist, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. But I mean, in the end, you've got to make the past convincing, you know. And right. I think uh, often you find these these small things, as I say, are the things which really bring the past back as if it were here now. If you find out, I mean, for instance, what kind of terms of endearment did people use towards each other? If people got cross with each other, what terms of abuse did they use for each other? You know, if they were rich, what did they eat? If they were poor, what did they eat? What kind of clothes did they wear? Yeah, these are real people. This is the stuff that brings the past back. I read, I'm a little bit of a tangent here, but I read that uh, Queen Victoria, the only person that could call her Vicky was Albert. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, that and, that uh, humanizes her a little bit. It does humanize her. I mean, yeah. it's, 
It's also, you know, this interesting thing that the reason why people wear black tuxes these days is because until the death of Prince Albert, evening dress, male evening dress in England had been multicolored. People would wear blue, scarlet, you know, golden tuxes. Would you say that's a common thread in your writing is trying to enliven history by humanizing the characters that... Yeah, well, certainly also looking at how history affects the lives of ordinary people and how to what extent ordinary people can shape history through their will, you know. I mean, I, I, and the, that interaction between the great sphere of public events and the small intimate sphere of private life, you know, that's been something I've always been interested in, whether it's then or now. You mentioned your professor said you should never write history until you can hear the people speak. This was a, a wonderful professor at Cambridge when I was there called Arthur Hibbert, who was a, himself a historian of the Middle Ages, a wonderful historian of medieval Europe and had the most remarkable gift when talking to make you actually see how people lived and walked around and what they said to each other and how they thought. And in many ways, he was a great imaginative artist too. And I've always remembered him and tried to live up to that principle. Beautiful principle. You have to take a few liberties then because you can't affirm that your hunch is exactly right. But yeah, just, no, of course you do. It makes it do. fun, and, and why not? You know, you hear a lot about women as spoils of war where they ransom mm-hmm. the beautiful daughter and so on. Did that actually happen? Yeah, that actually all happened. So they could it avoid happened. a whole war by just giving up their daughter? Well, there's a, I mean, there is, a, yes, there, there are instances, I mean, not only that, but sometimes it would make peace. Because, for instance, the Emperor Akbar, when he was conquering India, he was a mighty warrior. He was never defeated in battle. But because his interest was to create a peaceful country rather than just to crush people, when he defeated somebody in a battle, instead of chopping his head off, um, he tended to give him a job in the government and marry his daughter. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Pretty pragmatic. Yeah. He had a large harem of wives, but yeah. also, in, in a way, that network of marriage alliances was one of the things that, in a way, literally created the country because it created alliances instead of hostilities. A lot of people underestimate the importance of these family networks as they marry yeah. people into this area. And like Napoleon worked so hard to become established as a royal family just through all these marriages and so on. Exactly. And that was happening in Europe too. You know, right. if you look at the Italy of the Renaissance, the great families, you know, the Medicis, the Borgias, the Sforzas, etc., uh, saw marriage as a way of cementing relationships between their families and, and actually of avoiding war, therefore. You know, if you had formed marriage relationships between mm. your two families, you were much less likely to go to war with each other. So in our culture, the Bushes and the uh, Clintons worked so hard to establish these dynasties, but if they just thought a little more about marrying their kids into the right families, it, it might be more effective. It could well help. I think right. the idea of <laughs> a, Bush, a Bush married to a Clinton kind of slightly Ooh. boggles the mind, but it still... Does. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're speaking with Salman Rushdie about his new novel, The Enchantress of Florence. We'll continue our conversation with Sir Salman Rushdie in a moment as we explore the universal themes that can make travel such a rich part of life both in the 16th century and today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're talking with Salman Rushdie. He's the author of a lot of uh, award-winning novels, and his new novel is The Enchantress of Florence. Mr. Rushdie, the, the whole notion of an enchantress is a little bit mm-hmm. foreign to a lot of people. What is an enchantress? I suppose it's, it's another word for a sorceress or witch. And one of the things that happened in this period in the Renaissance was the, the growth of the idea that beautiful women might also possess occult powers. In the painting of the Renaissance, which, which harks back to classical Greece, I have to say, because the Greeks also believed this. The Greeks had many witches in their imagination, like Circe, of course, who enchanted Ulysses on his journeys. Um, the Renaissance, in many ways, harks back to that classical period and again becomes fascinated by this idea of beauty and sorcery as being huh. linked. Now that you mention it, yeah. I think I was enchanted or sort of in love with the Botticelli maiden for a good part of my life. Yes, it's not difficult, is it? But actually, the girl who is probably the model for the birth of Venus and also for the figure of, of Flora in Primavera is probably, she's probably somebody who was called Simonetta Vespucci, who became the, the mistress of one of the Medici dukes. And Botticelli was so in love with her that he said that when he died, he wanted to be buried at her feet. Wow. Um, he was not, of course. She died very young. In fact, she died of, uh, I think, of TB when she was less than 20 years old and yet you know, lives on through these two great paintings. You, you find yourself enchanted by Florence particularly. My relationship with Florence began when I was at college. I went and spent a summer there, a summer when I was really, really broke. And I was trying to stay as long as I could, so I had to stretch my funds out as far as they could go. So it was often a, a choice between eating a pizza or an ice cream because there wasn't enough money to do both on the same day. Right. I, I spent that summer there really being enchanted, I suppose, by the art and the architecture and the history of Florence. And I've been back a few times since, and it's always seemed to me like a place that I would like in some way to write about. I never quite knew mm-hmm. how or when or if, but I, I guess I finally found the way. Weren't you there during the 66 flood? I was there just after. Just after, so that must just have been after, a heart-wrenching time. Very difficult time to see the city so so wounded, you know. And I think in a way it's one of the reasons why I came to feel so deeply about it because I saw it in this very... Mm. Uh, a sad moment of being so damaged. Just covered with mud. Incredibly beautiful place, yes, with mud everywhere. and with You would walk into, like, for example, if you walked into the great church of Santa Croce um, and looked at the paintings hanging on the wall, you could literally see a watermark about a foot and a half up from the bottom of the picture, and everything below that that line of water was smudged and blurred, Mm. and everything above it was still a Renaissance masterpiece. And the whole world of art lovers came together to help out in the... Yes, indeed. And the restoration has been sensational. I mean, if you go back to the same church now and look at the same pictures hanging there, you can't see where that flood damage was. Where, where do you go to be enchanted by Florence today? Well, well, I remember certain things that I used to do. I mean, I used to go sit in the Piazza della Signoria. I used to go sit on the steps of the, uh, of the Bargello and sketch. I mean, I did quite a lot of sketching just, yeah. I mean, just, just for fun. And I would just sit there and, and, and try and sketch the great sculptures that were in the square in the, and, oh, yeah. and, and the square itself and watch the life of the city. I'm Rick Steves and we're talking with Salman Rushdie, the author of a new novel called The Enchantress of Florence. Mr. Rushdie, you are um, part of the Indian diaspora. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you left India, you live in uh, Britain now, right? Yeah, between a, London and New York. Yeah. I have a place in New York. What's too. your thought on diaspora these days? Is it a good thing? Is it a problematic thing? I, I, I'm dealing with Europe all the time and People just don't want to assimilate. And my question is, is good diaspora coming with assimilation or, or what? Well I, well, I think an enormous number of, uh, enormous majority of the, of the Indian diaspora, wherever you find it in the world, does integrate really well into the, into the local community. I mean, it, you know, to join in with a community doesn't always mean having to give up everything you bring along yourself. And I've, I've written most of my life about the enriching possibilities of the kind of world we now live in where different cultures you know, coexist, walk side by side in the same streets. Yeah. And I think the Indian diaspora is particularly, I think, a success story. I mean, you know, you wouldn't have Silicon Valley without the Indian diaspora. Some extraordinary percentage of new startups in Silicon Valley have Indians very near the top or at the mm-hmm. top. On the other hand, there's people who have been third generation in the Netherlands from northern Africa, and, and they mm-hmm. haven't learned a word of Dutch. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, but those I think are, I don't know the Netherlands so well, but there's something like that in a few of the northern post-industrial towns in England, a, a kind of, if you like, a kind of self-imposed ghettoization. Right. And, and I think that's very regrettable. And I think a lot of the real unpleasant aberrations that we've seen in, in recent times, such as the July bombings in London, came out of that kind of self-imposed ghetto mentality. And I, But I think it's important to emphasize that that is very much the exception, not the rule. I mean, very small numbers of South Asian migrants and their descendants in, in England live like that. Well, this is a hopeful thing because the diaspora is possible now with the way the communication goes and transportation and, and mm-hmm. everybody's more mobile. And integration is important also and uh, people have their cultures and they're going to be meshing. I was just um, standing on the Rock of Gibraltar this summer and I read that it was the uh-huh. only place you could see two continents and two seas at the same time. And I was yeah. looking out at the straits and I could see the um, tide rips where two bodies of water come together. Yes. And I thought of the rough seas and I thought of the food that gathered there and I thought of all the excitement of crossing over into Africa. It can be such mm-hmm. a good thing and a positive thing and it can also be just fraught with uh, well, suffering Well, it's both and things problems. and I think we have to look at the doubleness of it. You know, yeah. I mean, actually there's a place on the southern tip of India. If you go to what used to be called Cape Comorin, now called Kanyakumari, the southern tip of the Indian subcontinent, you actually see three seas crashing together. Ah. You see the Indian Ocean to the west, the Bay of Bengal to the east, and the great southern ocean coming up from the south, and actually if you stand in the right place and are at the right time, you can actually see three waves coming together and smashing into each other as these three different oceans meet at that point, the point the southern tip of India. And it's a reminder of how diverse this planet is and how much it can be celebrated or how much, if we play it wrong, it can be causing problems, which you've lived through. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, I'm the product of a diaspora. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't exist and nor would my work right. were it not for an act of migration. And so I guess I'm biased. I think there's more to celebrate than to worry about. I want to talk just for a minute about the fatwa. I know you probably uh, mm-hmm. get this all the time. I, I read yeah. that you said the fatwa gave you a persona, which is not really an accurate persona. Well, I think what happened is that I think it made a lot of people think of me as some kind of religious, arcane incomprehensible, you know, humorless figure. The Muslim Antichrist. Um, yeah, I, well, oh, God, that's a terrible <laughs> phrase. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not that person, I'm this person. No. And I also read that you, you called it rhetoric. I mean, I, I was kind of surprised to hear about that. You must have taken it seriously at first. Well, what was serious, what was serious about it was the desire of parts of the Iranian state to actually carry out a, a professional hit yeah, and that was very dangerous and very serious, and right. that's the reason for the, um, uh, you know, for all that security that I had to live with right. for so long. But actually, at the level of ordinary people, not that many of them were that exercised by it, you know. No. And, the, uh, and which is one reason why it was, you know, frankly, was able to fade away. That once the Iranian state gave up its support for professional terrorist attacks then essentially the danger disappeared because nobody else was that interested. Right. And you don't feel like talking about it is the opposite of letting sleeping dogs lie? No, no. I mean, I, you know, frankly, these days it's a media fatwa. It's only, I only talk about right. it when, newspaper, when journalists right. ask me about it. The rest of, the, rest of my right. time, I just have an ordinary life. I was just in Iran a couple of weeks ago with a, with a oh, film yeah. crew. You know, you see the death to Israel signs everywhere and so on. And it seems mm. like it's just a, sort of a noise that the people, it's a background noise that they're sort of numb to almost. An interesting thought was we were in the traffic jam and our guide, he got upset with the traffic and he said, death to traffic. And he, <laughs> he said, well, you know, when we're frustrated by something we can't control, we just say death to it. Yeah, exactly. What do you make you of have that? to always allow for the, the idiomatic usages of other languages, which may literally translate into something sounding more blood-curdling <laughs> than your own. That's a very important and a subtle thing to understand the mm-hmm. uh, physical differences of the languages. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you make of all the fear-riddling American society these days, or do you see fear in America? I, mean, I think there's a... You know, I mean, one can see why that fear began, because of the 9-11 attacks, you know. Right. Um, but I, I, I worry about the fact that maybe we've, it's been in the interest of, you know, of, of the recent administration in this country to keep us afraid. You know, I think you have to, in the end, the problem with fear is that fear cripples you and it ruins your judgment and it makes you make bad choices. And speaking as somebody who had to do this himself, in a certain point, you just have to put the fear in the corner in a little box and forget about it and get on with your day. Because otherwise, it, it just takes over your life. And as I say, it freezes the brain. I mean, there's a wonderful 
movie made by the German filmmaker Fassbinder, which was called Fear Reach the Soul. And I think that's actually as good a description of what it does as any. Wow, you have personally lived what many people in our society are struggling with right now, and, and you have such a positive and constructive way to deal with it. Well, I'm just saying you have to get through it. You know, I mean, yeah. you, either, it, you either sit in the corner and shake, <laughs> or you, you know, or you get on with your life. And I mean, I prefer the latter. Now, your books deal with societies and cultures head-on confrontation or head-on connection, and it, it carbonates one's existence when you can actually meld these things together. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of pleasure in it, you know, and I think one of the things that I found writing The Enchantress of Florence was just how much fun it was to bring these worlds together, you know, to try and evoke this really, the rich tapestry of the past and full of stories I wouldn't have dared to make up and to bring those stories into collision with each other and to create by doing so yet another story, you know, my story was just the most fun. I and mean, as I say, there were things I couldn't possibly have dreamt of. For instance, <laughs> there's a moment when this Indian princess is going west across, at this particular point, the Ottoman-Turkish world. And doing the reading for it, I discovered, to my enormous delight, that at this precise moment, the Ottomans had just been fighting a war against Dracula. You know, I mean, actual Dracula, Vlad Dracul, Vlad right. the Dragon, Vlad the Impaler. And uh, at the moment at which I realized I could have Dracula in my novel, you know, well, I just felt that I'd gone to heaven. You know? <laughs> uh, and so, so there he is. There's a little little guest appearance by Dracula in the novel. Of course, he wasn't a vampire. <laughs> uh, um, that's the thing that Bram Stoker made up in, in his novel, Dracula. He wasn't even the Prince of Transylvania, which is what we all think he was. He was the prince, in fact, of the other province of Romania, um, which is Wallachia. He may not have been a vampire, but he certainly was. He was so bloodthirsty that a little a little vampirism would have come as light relief, frankly. That would have been a, a, a real blessing as you're putting the pieces together for your book to, to be able to weave yeah, that in. Yeah, there he is. And that's one of the joys I felt in reading through it is all of a sudden something flies in from another corner of the world. And yeah. it's realistic because there are these connections. Yeah, it was a really interesting world. You spent seven years researching this. Yeah, but I wasn't just full-time. I was writing two other books at the time as well. Right. But in my spare time, I was kind of reading myself in to the world of the of the past. And it makes it sound like hard work when you say seven years researching, yeah. but actually it was enormously enjoyable. Now, when you write a book like this, of course, you're interested in selling books and, and, and getting mm. the royalties, but what is another motive that you have? What, what do you hope people get out of this? Well, I mean, I'm just trying to look at how individuals um, deal with their lives and to what extent they are able to face up to and shape the great events against which they live. So that subject of the collision between history and the individual, you know, the way in which great events affect our lives, the way in which perhaps, if we are lucky, we get to shape something to do with the, with our times. That conflict between private life and public life, I think that's been my subject. And in, in this particular case, as I say, I felt that I was writing about the moment at which the East and the West first encountered each other. You know, I mean, 50 years before the period I'm writing about, nobody in India had ever heard of Europe. Nobody from Europe had ever been to India. So we're, we're looking at the moment at which these two great worlds, the world of the East and the world of the West, first really came into contact with each other and began to engage with each other and to make out what they thought of each other. And of course, since we now live in this age when there is such a complicated engagement between East and West, I thought it would be very interesting to go look at the beginning of it. Sometimes you look at the beginning of something, it gives you some clues for why the future turned out as it did. And a lot of people who are raised ethnocentrically, they, they never have the openness to appreciate the wisdom or the wealth of experience from another part of the world. And given the big challenges confronting us right now, it's a, it's a lost opportunity, isn't it, to not open your eyes to the other cultures in this planet? Absolutely. And I think it's one of the great things that the novel can offer readers is that because the novel works through human beings and their, and their feelings and needs and so on, readers can, by identifying with and, and, and wanting to know about those characters, they can enter into worlds which are very remote from their own world and be made to feel that they understand that world. You know, it doesn't even have to be the past. I mean, I was reading about America long before I ever came yeah, to the United yeah. States, and it gave me the sense that I knew something about it. I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Salman Rushdie. He's the author of a new novel called The Enchantress of Florence. Mr. Rushdie, I noticed you picked India and Italy as the two settings for the new mm -hmm. novel. 
Those happen to be my two favorite countries. Oh, that's nice. And one reason I like India so much, which is where you're from, is that it really shook up all my self, my cultural self-confidence and self-assuredness and my ethnocentrism. I thought I knew what music was. I thought I knew what time was and love and pain. Go to India, mm-hmm. and they rewrite the book. It rearranges all your furniture. Any thoughts I'm on that? glad to hear you say it. I do think for people who have never been to India that a first visit is an extraordinarily intense experience. I mean, it's, an, it's a very sensual place, India, so it's an assault on all your senses. You know, the field of vision is very crowded. It's very noisy. It smells a lot. And it also, it, it kind of blows your mind because, it, as you say, the way in which people have thought and felt and expressed themselves there is, is not only very different from, you know, from the American way, if you like, but also you know, extraordinarily engaging and involving. And I, I find when people go to Western people, Americans go to India, they have, again, a very extreme response to it. A lot of people love it and can't get enough of it and go back all the time. Yeah. And, and other people can't stand it and run. And I'm a tour guide, and it's one place I would not want to take a group because it's such a personal thing to go to India. You've got to have your own voyage of discovery there. But there's a lot of suffering and a lot of uh, misery, but at the same time, you have a billion people living out their lives. And to me, they have a knack of enjoying joy and and love in a bulk kind of way where it's just a a festival of, of life. I think that's very well said. I think that's exactly right been speaking with Salman Rushdie, the author of The Enchantress of Florence. Uh, a reoccurring phrase in your book, which I think is fascinating, is the curse of the human race is not that we are so different, but that we are so alike. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that we're all members of the same species and we all think and feel and react the same way. But in the novel, it's, it's kind of said slightly tongue-in-cheek, that, that remark, because it's pretty obvious what the differences are. You know, we can see the very large picture of how different the East and the West are in terms of religion and culture and history and background and social observance and so on. But the thing that I found over and over again, looking at the histories of these two worlds and trying to bring them together, was how much, in fact, they did have in common. I mean, as I say, these were times when both cultures were going through a period of great intellectual and philosophical inquiry and and rethinking, you know, and, and in many ways the modern world and the ideas of the modern world were being shaped and born at this time, both in the East and the West. They were both cultures at a real pinnacle of artistic achievement in all the arts, music, poetry, painting, architecture. And even at this kind of social level, they were very hedonistic worlds. You know, the, right. the Renaissance was characterized by I mean, a lot of kind of social excess, a lot of boozing and gambling and, and visiting brothels and so on. And very much the same thing happening in the Mughal world where it wasn't so much booze, it was more likely to be opium. Mm-hmm. But there was still a, a kind of culture of, of overindulgence. You know, both the worlds mirrored each other in this, in this kind of sensual way as well. Yeah, well, speaking to all the travelers who are listening to us now, I'll tell you, reading Salman Rushdie's The Enchantress of Florence is a wonderful travel adventure. Mr. Rushdie, thank you so much for joining us, and, and best wishes. Thank you very much. Up next, sailing expert Anthony Sandberg tempts us to sail the eastern Mediterranean with advice for anchoring in ancient Greek ports of call. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's time to do a little sailing in the Mediterranean, and we're joined by Anthony Sandberg, who's the founder and president of the nation's largest single-location sailing school, which is located in Berkeley, California, OCSC. Anthony, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Now, when we talked about our topic, uh, I was thinking Mediterranean, and uh, you proposed Eastern Mediterranean. Why is that? Well, you know, there's still a lot of islands that you can explore and a lot of coastline that isn't yet overwhelmed with tourism. So whereas the the regular tourist routes will dominate and take over and really dramatically change particular spots that people drop in, Mykonos for one, let's say, or or, um, Santorini, there are plenty of islands in between that really have changed little since I first sailed them 40 years ago. It's probably just like visiting villages in Tuscany or something like that. Some islands are going to be mobbed and other islands are going to be wide open. Exactly. You know, the the typical tourist allows themselves three, five, seven days, and they barely scratch the surface. And in fact, even when they're in a town, they barely go beyond a block or two uh, from the waterfront. And that's the real key and secret is get deeper and you're going to have more fun and you're going to get more authentic experiences. And to go to the backside of the island. 
Exactly right. Most people will hit an island and have dinner there and say, I've, okay, been there, done that. But if you can just stay a second day, you're going to become a local. You know? Yeah, it's not that tough to get away from the high-rent district where everybody just uh, doubles their prices and has English menus, and you could actually hang out with locals and play a little backgammon. Exactly right. We're talking about exploring the eastern Mediterranean. For a lot of us, it's hard to even imagine. We've done all the, the buses and, the, and maybe the ferry island hopping, but never had the freedom to have our own boat to explore and island hop. Give us an overview. What are the options? What are the popular destinations? What are your favorites? Well, the entire Mediterranean is open, especially the northern and eastern Mediterranean, to easy chartering, and it can be at any number of levels. If you know how to sail, you can rent a boat and be your own skipper. You can rent an upscale boat or one that's a little older and uh, a lot more affordable. Certainly the coast of Italy, southern France, Croatia, Greece, Turkey are all wide open and easily accessible to um, fun day sailing, day hopping, or a week or two, which is my preference, to spend some time and, and really play. The wonderful thing is a boat rented, let's say a, a 45-footer for six or eight people, will run about $150 a day per person. You can cook aboard, all your gear is aboard, and every day your entertainment is available to you without having to pay for that two-hour ride around to the other beach. You sail there, and if you make friends and meet people that you'd like to uh, have join you, you can have them aboard and sail from one island to another. So you're saying a 45-foot yeah. yacht for six or eight people? That's right. 150 per day, so we're talking $1,200 per day for the yacht. Break it out a little, a little more. Is that a yacht with a skipper? Is it including gas? Uh, how does it work? That would be all your expenses, and that would include a skipper. A skipper probably in the neighborhood of 200 to $300 a day. If you skipper it yourself, you could take $300 off of that and mm -hmm. say maybe around $900 a, a day or $100, $110 a day per person. It's interesting you bring that up because my son just took a, a break from his study program in Rome and him and eight buddies went to Athens. They chartered a yacht and they said it was, if they split it between them all, it must have been a, a, a low-end yacht, but they had a skipper and they had a very affordable time just uh, cruising around the Aegean Sea. Isn't that spectacular? And they probably learned a little bit about sailing while they did that and certainly became accustomed to Mediterranean mooring, the classic approach which requires you to back your boat into the quay. So they were anchoring, they were docking. And it's especially affordable because you can cook aboard. And you've got, it's your transportation, it's your kitchen, it's your hotel, and it's your entertainment. And, you know, you feel differently. You feel like you've earned it when you see an island in the distance and you, under your own power, sail there. Also, the magic is you've got the best uh, room in the, in the house. All of these ancient towns probably for 2,000 years have used that little harbor, but you're, you're able to park essentially downtown. How does this work, though, Anthony? Let's say I'm on my boat and I tell the skipper I want to go to the island of Milos, and then all of a sudden we say, eh, let's go to Sifnos instead. Can you just drop into Sifnos and, and find a spot like I would in a state park in, up here in the northwest? Or, or Absolutely. Yes, so it's really wide open that way. It's wide open. There's no registration. There's no difficulty. The boat will have papers. And I would say one out of every five times you drop anchor in a harbor, one of the harbor masters will stop by, ask to see your passports, make sure you're not smugglers. But it's very loose. Do you have to pay a, a fee to drop the hook? Most places are going to be free. Some of the more popular and, and crowded islands, you may find yourself paying 15 or $20 for the night. Will most budget travelers end up uh, dropping the hook and taking the dinghy in, or do you actually find a dock that you can tie up on overnight? Well, you know, the tradition is the first boats that arrive um, have their stern to the quay. Then the next set of boats will have their stern to your bow. In a place like Idra, you know, which is about 40 miles away from Athens and very beautiful and popular, I've seen five and six rows of yachts there, but nobody's disturbed by that. You step aboard a Norwegian boat, a Russian boat, a German boat. It's funny. You say, I was thinking of all the islands. I was just thinking Idra. I was just there. And the oh, yacht is that right? The yacht scene is just so romantic. Isn't it gorgeous? You know, that island uh, is just one of my favorites. It, it always has been. And, and the fact that they don't allow motored vehicles on that island. So the, one of the pleasures is just the silence and only the clomp of hooves, right? And the sound of donkeys doing their hard work. That's right. And as they have for centuries, they're just going about this traffic-free wonderland. And this fortified harbor now houses not the, the Greek Navy, but it harbors uh, yachts. 
I noticed late at night, there's a lot of fancy yachts. They were all on board watching their big screen TVs and the, the backpackers were out in the bars. But they, these yachts are such floating um, bins of luxury that a lot of the people enjoyed uh, uh, a nice refuge each night as well. Yeah. You're cheek to jowl with the rich and famous. So if you've rented a low-end boat, you still have every right to be there and, and enjoy all of that experience that people who are spending hundreds of thousands or millions for beautiful yachts uh, have. I never thought of yachting as a great equalizer, but in a sense, I think you're right. Anybody in that bay in Idra or whatever isn't having this, essentially the same experience, whether they've got a, a $50,000 boat or a, a $5 million boat. That's absolutely true. One of my favorite memories is running along the harbor front in Antalya or some town in Turkey with my tour guide, and we had 20 people ready to go for a cruise along the coast. We never made a, a advance uh, arrangements. We would just run along, and there's all these guys hanging out with their beautiful, beautiful boats ready to be hired for the day. We'd give them an hour, and they'd equip it with some uh, nice picnic, and we'd meet them, and we'd go for a sail, and surprisingly reasonable and surprisingly flexible. Can that still be done on the mainland of Turkey? It sure can. Uh, the goulettes, they're called. Now, in the highest season, you'd be wise to make some arrangements. If it's just a day trip, that's what they're used to. But the better boats, you'd be to your advantage to make reservations ahead of time. I love doing that. Typically, I'll have 8 or 12 of us, and we'll rent a, a larger one, say a 75 or 80-footer, mm -hmm. and that we'll have six or eight double cabins. I would imagine, Anthony, that it's quite a bit of uh, supply and demand, you know, and in Turkey, if the times are a little bit slow, if you're off-season or if the economy is such, there's not as many people uh, uh, bidding up the yachts. These guys are there. They've got the time. They've got the boat. It's a sunny day, and, and you might be able to strike a deal with them. Not in July and August, but right. uh, my favorite times to go are late May and early June, and uh, middle September to middle October, you are going to see five or six vessels there at a minimum, and they're going to try to outdo each other getting your business. So you may go for as little as half price, absolutely. I'm talking with Anthony Sandberg, and Anthony is an uh, enthusiast for yachting and sailing. He's the founder and president of the uh, uh, nation's largest single-location sailing school in Berkeley, California. For more information on his work, you can go to his website, ocsc.com. Anthony, compare uh, sailing on the Dalmatian coast off of Croatia with the Greek Sea. How, how would you compare the two zones? On the Dalmatian coast, you have that wonderful Venetian architecture, that classic stone with the red roofs, a really lovely area. It's almost unbelievable that 15 years ago they were in desperate civil war and even blowing up Dubrovnik. Uh, now the place is spectacular, beautiful, and at the top end of destinations. It's very easy, of course, when you're sailing that coast because you'll go probably from Zadar to... I love those names in Croatia, mm. Zadar, Krimik, Trogir, Brak, Havar. You almost feel like you're a Croatian uh, speaking. There are beautiful islands, and they're deeply, deeply wooded. Big difference. A lot of people are kind of surprised when they get to Greece and they see kind of the barren, stark Spartan islands, that, uh, except in the north where they've lost the foliage. But uh, in, in Croatia, predominantly that run from Dubrovnik to Krimik, uh, you find beautiful, well-wooded islands, great fishing, and a very friendly atmosphere. Also, a lot of deep culture. There's a real love of oh, classical yeah. music, oh. and uh, there's festivals in almost every town all spring and summer long. And that feeling that this is part of the Venetian Empire. You've got, as you mentioned, that, that Venetian architecture. Of course, Dubrovnik was, this, in some ways, the second city of the Venetian trading empire. Korchula is a little mini version of that. Did you go into the Bay of Kotor by chance? I did, and I love that. All the way up. That's really a very special journey to go up there. Now, that's in Montenegro, isn't it? That's it. Very, very down in the south, closer to Albania. And it's like a fjord. It's a big, long, powerful fjord. You know, the drama of that territory is uh, really spectacular. Now, if I was in the Bay of Kotor, Anthony, I'd want to park my boat in the town of Kotor, wander around, mm -hmm. check that out, uh, enjoy a little bit of relaxing in the sun, I suppose, for a siesta on the boat, and then I'd want to venture inland. Generally, when you moor in a town, are there ways that you can use that as a springboard to go inland? How, how big of a part of your vision is that when you do a Mediterranean trip? You, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that. A lot of people, when they first do a boat charter, feel boat-bound. But, uh, you know, you, that, that is as silly as renting a car and saying, well, I guess we better sleep in this thing. <laughs> um, you know, that's, it's a tool. It's a vehicle. So, really, it's very easy. Any place you can anchor or dock your boat, you can find a harbor master, let them know you're going to be gone for a day or two or a week. 
and take off inland, knowing that you can come back, grab the boat, and go on to another thing. You can also be very creative with your group. You can say, a few people say, we'd like to get off here, take a train, and why don't you meet us four or five cities down the coast? So lots of creativity. If you're going to leave the boat, you leave it, and if you're going to sail it, frankly, all modern sailboats easily handled by two people. How do independent-minded travelers learn more about this? Are there guidebooks or web sources, or what would you recommend? You know, I don't know what you can't find out on the web. It is so easy if you call some of the charter companies. They will gladly send you brochures, which will give you a deep understanding of what's possible and what's available. And um, there are terrific books that over the last 40, 50 years have been written on cruising the Mediterranean. It, is, it has been a kind of a well-kept secret that it's imminently doable and, and ex- exceptionally affordable. One thing we have to remember is you've got the Saracen pirates in the north and you've got the Barbary pirates in the south, right? What kind of uh, a risk uh, do you have that way the, in this century? You know, fortunately, that's all gone. So um, <laughs> No that's pirates. That's all gone. You no mentioned, pirates. though, that you wouldn't sail in the far east or the southeast of the Mediterranean. What are the concerns there given the political instability of that region? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not so sure. And boy, I would love to. I've, I've been dying to go to Syria and, and see the Crusader castles. And some of the best times I ever had in my life were in Lebanon in their early 70s before they had some of the challenges. Mm. But right now, those, those coastal waters, I think, are a little questionable. I have been invited recently to go sailing along the coast of Israel, and I'm pretty excited about that. I'm thinking yeah. I'm going to do that next summer. Do people sail up the Nile? Oh, they absolutely do. Now, you don't typically there take your own private yacht up the Nile. It could be done. But instead, you'll rent a felucca. Oh, I love the felucca. Luxor, They're just the such sun a going gorgeous down. boat. One of the most oh, romantic yeah. moments I've ever had in my life is on a felucca. They are just such graceful birds that are, are, are sailing, and, and their history is thousands of years old. Of course, the Egyptians sailed up and down the, the Nile. Sailing, or on a still night being pulled. And you have to, it takes a little while to get comfortable with a man working hard to pull you up and down the river mm-hmm. as the sun goes down, but you get used to it. You do. So adding a little bit of sailing like that, you can certainly do it for an afternoon. You can also, we have a trip we're designing now in which half of it is Uh, sailing feluccas, and the other half is riding horses along the Nile as we go up. Wow. There's like a million different ways you can construct a sailing adventure in the eastern Mediterranean. Tell me about underwater antiquities. Do you ever encounter those? Well, you know, with great frequency we do, especially in in Turkey. And Turkey is very careful about that. So open, um, just uh, free diving is allowed, but the the law is that you're not to touch anything you see. But I have gone diving, and I'm sure you have too, among ancient Roman and Greek columns and uh, whole Lycian tombs that have, uh, how, how are does, now underwater. How does that work? I mean, you got like tombs, necropolis, uh, cities underwater from 2,000 years ago. Did the sea rise or the set land settle, or, or how does that come about? I think we have both of those have happened. Uh, you know, Ephesus was once a seaport That's with right. all of the... Uh, the drainage that happened there, um, now the port is, you know, miles away. Pompeii also. Oh, very interesting. Talk to me, Anthony, just about the winds. Every time I'm in, in Europe, the local people say, when you know the winds, you don't need the weather report, you know? That's right. They're almost so predictable. I have these wind charts, these wind uh, books that will show the predominant winds for every day, every season, and time of day. And the winds in the Mediterranean have been followed and, and known. There are all kinds of names for them and uh, warnings about when they come. The one that's probably the most well-known is the Meltimi and the Cyclades, the strong winds that come out of the north and blow really in the June, July, August period, sometimes hitting 40 or 50 miles an hour. Those are good days to say, I think we're going to spend another day in port and explore the other side of the island. Got to trust your captain in that regard, don't you? Exactly. And of all the places in the world that I've sailed, weather reports are available 24 and 48 hours out. So there's no reason why you should find yourself surprised by weather. If you're a capable skipper or you're in good hands of a capable captain, uh, it's perfectly safe to enjoy this kind of sailing adventure. You know, it really is. I mean, there are other skills required if you say, I want to sail the whole South Pacific or I want want to sail down the coast of Africa. But you're always in the Mediterranean, you're always in sight of land, and you're doing sails that never need to be more than three to six hours in length. Hmm. So you can take a piece of that. Now, one of the secrets, my greatest secret about sailing in the, in the Med is get up early and leave, enjoy a morning sail, and then get yourself anchored sometimes by 11 or 12 o'clock. That allows you a whole day and a good start on that day to, to really explore that new location. 
Unfortunately, a lot of people stay up late, drink mm -hmm. too much, and then get started late in the afternoon. They find themselves with the least attractive anchorages when they get to an island, and it's just a dinner at a new island as opposed to really mm. getting to know it. I suppose, yeah, a big factor there is anchoring or, or coming into port before everybody else does. You can get a spot in the dock. Exactly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're fantasizing about sailing the eastern Mediterranean with Anthony Sandberg. He's the founder and president of OCSC. Uh, it's the nation's largest single-location sailing school located down in Berkeley, California. Anthony, you've had so many magical experiences sailing, it seems, all over the world. Take us on one little sailing adventure that really sums up the magic of sailing in the eastern Mediterranean. Well, you know, on your first day when you leave Athens at the Piraeus and you sail down the Attic coast, the last very tip there is, is Cape Sunian, and there's a marvelous temple to Apollo at that very point. When you cross that point, you go into the um, Cyclades, and at that very spot is probably the greatest concentration of dolphin that I ever see in any of the Mediterranean. And it's as though every year that I'm there, it's as though they're waiting to greet me, and, and then they stay with us, sometimes all the way to our first island, which is typically Keithnos. So we're surrounded by dolphins surfing the bow waves, and there's just a gleeful celebration that I know had to warm the hearts of ancient Odysseus as well as, uh, as a modern traveler. I love that. Dolphins escorting you to your next Greek island adventure. Exactly. Anthony Sandberg, thanks so much for sharing your love of sailing in the Mediterranean. Thank you for having me aboard. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has links to program archives and extra features. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Cronin, Sonia Grosset, and Ashley Southwick, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Thanks to Doug Patterson at KUOW Seattle, and to Milt Wallace at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for their engineering help today. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Join us next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.